Hello everyone to a new conversation about software engineering. Today is the first episode of a three-part series about the operational requirements on latency and availability. The Google Site Reliability Engineering program did a lot of work in that field, mostly known as service-level objectives, service-level indicators, and error budgets. In all three episodes, I'm going to talk to Alex Premley, a Site Reliability Engineer at Google. In the first episode, we are going to cover uh, putting user happiness in front of almost everything, measuring user happiness with uh, SLIs, service level of, uh, indicators, defining user happiness with SLOs, service level objectives, what are error budgets and how to use them, defining good enough baseline requirements for latency and availability, how to establish feedback loops with people who understand our users best, Measuring and defining latency, how to do that. All right, let's get started. Welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. Today about um, the art of service level objectives. My guest today is Alex Premley. Uh, Alex joined Google in January 2010 as the first mobile site reliability engineer in London. He spends around seven and a half years in various reincarnations of uh, mobile, Android, and play uh, site reliability engineering. He now works as a customer reliability engineer for Google Cloud, where much of his time recently has been spent rethinking how people teach customers, partners, and the general public about service level objectives. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Yes, awesome. Uh, looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Yes, yeah, sorry, it's taken um, <laughs> Okay, let's let's start with uh, service level terminology. Um, why do we need to think about the level of service we provide to our customers? Well, as I, I sort of hope the answer is uh, self-evident from the question, but uh, for the sake of argument, let me let me just preach for a bit. Uh, a lot of my job in teaching people has been standing on a soapbox and just kind of shouting at them. And like for uh, the first part of that, this that's kind of what I'm going to do. So I think that caring about your users and providing reliable services to them is is just good business practice. In most cases. The continued existence of a company is dependent on its users still wanting to use the services that it offers. And, and without customers to pay for those services or users to serve adverts to, the revenue stream for your company is going to drive up, dry up and the company is eventually going to collapse. You know, in well-run in well markets with healthy competition, your users are going to have a variety of providers to choose from for any given service. So this means that if they can get equivalent or better service from a competitor, for equivalent or less money, the only disincentive to moving are the time, cost, and inconvenience of doing so. So as a business owner, if you'd rather your users didn't leave, you pretty much have to provide good service, good enough service that doesn't seem worth the effort of leaving. And that means that it's worth your while to continuously measure and understand the experience your users have with your services, because you, you don't want to discover that your service is no longer good enough when all your users suddenly decamp to a competitor. At that point, it's much harder, a lot harder, to win back their trust and their business. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, um, once I'm very unhappy with the, let's say, reliability of a certain service, um, I just move on and I don't look back. Uh, so I, I think that you, ever as a as a SaaS provider, for example, you have to do a lot of work to yeah to to regain customer trust. 
Yes, it's, it's very easy to very easy to just burn it away accidentally, not even thinking about it. Like, unintended. <laughs> it can be an unintended consequence of a like a, a choice that you made that you thought was going to make your product better, but once it's gone, it's gone, and it's really hard to get it back. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, indeed the case. So yeah, when when I'm unhappy, I usually yeah, I don't I don't go back. I just look for someone new. Um. Yeah, most people have heard about service level agreements, SLAs. Um, can you briefly explain what 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 it means? Sure, totally. Um, SLAs are they're more of a legal thing than a, a technical thing, in my opinion. Uh, they're they're a bit like an insurance policy that you provide for your customers. In general terms, an SLA it, it tends to say if the level of service you receive is this much below that you're paying for, you're, you get this much in this form of compensation. So like um, if you, we promise you that your service will be available 99.9% .9 of the time and it's only available like 80% of the time, we're going to pay you this much for the difference. And insurance is, a, I think, a nice analogy because I don't think most people want to have insurance. They don't want to have to have insurance. Like, most of the time we do this anyway because it helps mitigate risks like take home insurance for example you don't want to have to have home insurance like it'd be nice if your house was just fine right uh, it'd be you don't want to have to but the, the problem is that when you have to fix your house it can cost a significant amount of money um i've got a the, the, you don't want to have to pay out that money straight away. This is why I don't ad-lib, right? <laughs> you, you, uh, we, I don't think most people want to have to have insurance. Most of the time we do this anyway because it helps mitigate the risks. Um, this doesn't mean we're happy when we have to make a claim. It's usually quite the opposite. I like, for example, I had to make a claim on my home insurance a couple of years ago due to some, some silence problems with my house. The insurance folks are great. The, the subsidence was sorted quickly. They even repainted like half my house after fixing up the cracks. But you know what I'd have preferred? That, that I didn't have to have, I didn't have one wall of my house sinking into the ground. That would have been way better. And a similar argument applies to service level uh, agreement. Yes, you can compensate your customers because they got poor service from you. But I'm pretty sure you burned a lot of trust too because you gave them poor service. And that's not something you can buy back with this compensation. They'd much, most likely, much rather have had good service in the first place, and this applies doubly to a cloud service provider because often the customers of a cloud services provider they're going to also have customers, and they're going to have to compensate their customers for the poor service that they receive from you, and like the compensation they have to pay out may not even be like it may even be more than the compensation that they receive from the cloud provider, and like at that point they. They've lost trust of their customers. They've lost money. They're not going to be happy at all. Like, and they're going to come to you as a cloud provider and say, "Like, this is not good enough." Like, and as usual, there are some game theory aspects to consider in this too. Like, I, I talk a lot about incentives when I'm talking to people about uh, how to talk about reliability and how to like organize your business so that your services are more reliable. And so, the cutoff point for when an SLA violation triggers compensation is going to be set 
near the point where that compensation motivates customers to continue using your services rather than moving to a competitor. And given that there's a number of other factors to consider that dissuade customers from that sort of change, like the, the cost of switching a cloud provider, for example, is astronomically high. Like, And it's not just about being able to stand up your services in a different cloud. It's like you have to have all your data in multiple places. And the, the people talk about this thing like data gravity and moving your data out of a cloud provider to another cloud provider is one of the highest cost, highest risk things in any migration between. Mm. So yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. That's that gap. Sorry, that cost, additional cost means that there's usually a massive gap between the level of service that's good enough to keep your customers happy and the level of service which is bad enough to trigger a compensation payout. Mm. Yeah, uh, before before talking about customer happiness, um, yeah, uh, by, by the time of the recording, I think it was one week ago, one major cloud provider uh, had a big problem in US East. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it was basically it wasn't the news because all of a sudden uh, door doorbells and uh, refrigerators and uh, uh, all those internet-enabled things, uh, vacuum cleaners, uh, didn't work anymore. And yeah, I'm sure that uh, the, that those companies got uh, money back from their cloud provider because the you know the, there was an SLA breach. But true, um, nobody wants that problem. So the cloud provider doesn't want to pay back the money to their customers, and their customers they have lots of costs because I mean. We had the problem that uh, during the weekend we had an incident because US East was down. So that's it. Yeah, ev ev everyone was quite uh, unhappy. Yeah. When you get into providing consumer services on top of um, a cloud uh, provider, you've got a massive fan out problem. Like your the relationship between you and the cloud provider is one to one, but you have wanted like many tens of thousands of your customers, and um, that means that the scale of compensation that you receive from your cloud provider is not likely to be the same as the scale of compensation that you may have to pay out to your customers. Although yeah, I suspect yeah. a lot of people providing end, end services to their customers, they aren't going to provide any kind of monetary compensation. They may, like, you may get some free credits, like you won't have to pay as much in your subscription next month if, you, if it's been really bad. But a lot of the time, mm. like the, your costs are going to be, okay, so instead of paying like X for my support staff, I had to pay a Y because we had to burst to like three times, five times the number of support staff. We had to deal with like 20 times the number of complaints. And of course, now the reputation of my com company is in the trash bin. And that's that mm, cost. Yeah. And it's it's one that's hard to put a monetary figure on because like reputation isn't like fungible with cash, but it is still a cost that the company has to pay. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the cost of an, let's say, day-long outage can be quite high from different perspectives. Yeah, um, different perspectives. Yeah, um, customer happiness. So you mentioned it. Um, we, we want to keep our customers happy. Um, that is a very difficult question. You know, when I go to, let's say, I go to a... Um, to a product manager and I say, what, what uh, availability or performance makes our customers happy? 
<laughs> usually they have no idea uh, what I'm asking. So obviously that doesn't work. So how how should we measure customer happiness? <laughs> I have a, a terrible joke in the art of SLOs about uh, not users not consenting to having electrodes put into their brain. Uh, but like you can't measure serotonin and dopamine level directly, but that is what actual happiness is, right? Um, so you have to find a proxy as always to this kind of thing. And um, really a question is like, how good is your proxy measure um, to the actual happiness of your customers? And so the things you can measure about your systems tend to be metrics. You have monitoring metrics. You like anyone running a large scale system in production, they're gonna have something checking on the health of that system consistently all the time, or I would hope so. Like otherwise, how do you know it's even working? So some of these um, some of these metrics can be useful for determining whether the customers, um, not necessarily the customer is happy, but that the service they're receiving from you is meeting their expectations. And like the one of the tricks of um, SLOs in general is like that that conversion of um, user happiness to services currently meeting users' expectations. Like if you start talking about it in terms of whether your service is meeting those expectations, you can measure aspects of your system and its performance and judge, like judging whether it's meeting expectations is more of a, it's less of a, a specific thing. Like, but you can make some assumptions that make it possible to do that. So, and we, start talking about this in terms of service level indicators, which are specific metrics that are measured by your monitoring systems that are a good proxy for the experience your users are having while using your service. So in the art of SLOs, we like to recommend that it's a ratio of two metrics, the number of good events to the total number of events over time. Um, and when you start talking about specific metrics, it becomes easier to kind of make this more concrete. So the canonical example I tend to use here is HTTP responses because a lot of the things that I monitor tend to be web-based services working for Google, like most of the stuff we provide is a web-based service, right? So we talk about a lot of things in terms of HTTP responses. And no one really wants to receive the dreaded 500 internal server error when they're just trying to browse their favorite site or read their email. So this is clearly, it's not a good event. Like they were expecting to receive the web page that they, you know, they clicked a link, they were expecting to receive the web page they wanted, and instead they get like an error page that's going to make a user, the user unhappy because they didn't get the thing that they were expecting to get. On the other hand, you know, getting the 200 okay is okay, that's good. So that's, that's clearly a good event. So if you divide the rate at which you're serving these HTTP 200s by the rate you're serving all HTTP responses, you're probably gonna get a number that's a little bit smaller than one. If it's one or close to one, most of your users are getting okay responses. And because of the like the translation we were talking about just now, you can say they're mostly getting the responses they expected from your system, so they are mostly happy. But if it's a lot, mm. if it's a lot smaller than one, it means that lots of your users are not getting this okay response. And so they're not getting the response they expected from your system. Therefore, you're going to assume that they are not happy. And Therefore, this metric is indicating the level of service that your users are receiving and by proxy indicating how happy they are in aggregate about your system and its operation. Hmm. 
Okay, so I have my service level indicator, which, yeah, let's say we have the Google search, right? So if Google search returns uh, 200 uh, most of the time, then uh, then every, the user is happy. Or if I have my, my web shop and I don't know, the search and the product detail page and the checkout um, from that web shop um, works, let's say most of the time, um, my users are happy. The question is, I mean, we, we talked about that uh, before. It's, it's, it's very hard. I mean, bef before the podcast, it's, it's very hard to, uh, to, to, or basically impossible to have 100%. I mean, it would be easy to say, uh, we want 100% uh, of, uh, good events with, um, uh, in the ratio with, uh, all events. Uh, that would certainly make the customer happy. Um, but it's, uh, 100% is impossible. Yeah. And, uh, the question is, what is, what is the, the right level? How do we know when our users are happy enough? Is it what 100 or 80 or whatever? I mean, it, it probably depends. Uh, I, I guess this is the, this is the natural next question. I mean, <clears throat> everyone wants a hundred percent, right? But, um, exactly. <laughs> in, in, practic in practical terms, the reality has a, a way of messing with you when it comes to that kind of thing, right? No one, everyone wants hundred percent, but um, achieving hundred percent is a very, very different matter entirely. Um, I, I, so answering the question is quite difficult. What level of service is good enough? Um, when your users are complaining about something else, I guess is uh, one one way of putting it. Like. Um, for the purposes of the discussion right now, though, I think it's it's fine to just say pick a number, uh, set a target that you think will keep most of your users happy, and measure that. And like you need to find external correlating events which can tell you um, whether you've set your target in the right place or not. Like a, a good way of doing this is to have an outage. I mean, nobody likes having outages, but you get information from them that you do not get when your service is operating normally. And so if you have an outage and you've say you've you've set a target, you've set a, an objective for your service levels, um, that's like I think my service should be three nines reliable. I I think that ninety nine point nine percent of the time my users should be getting an okay response. Um and then you have an outage and you um actually I guess the the best thing for the purposes of this discussion is to say, well, you have a dip in your level of okay responses from like 99.99% okay to 99.9% okay. And so you're still with, at your target uh, and you're serving at the goal that you once said, you said would keep your users happy, but you start seeing like increases to your support request lines. You'd start seeing sadness on Twitter. You start seeing forum posts saying, why isn't this working anymore? Then you know that your target was in the wrong place. And that is information you couldn't have got without like serving at that target or below that target. And conversely, like if you set a three nines target and you dip down to two and a half nines and you still don't see any more support requests, you still don't see any complaints on Twitter, then that's an indication that maybe your users don't care that much about your reliability. Like you, you don't know in a vacuum, you have to find ways of getting information from your users. Like sometimes just asking them can be good enough. If you like, if you're a small company, and you have a relatively good relationship with your users, then 
you can do things like customer satisfaction surveys and they will tell you whether it's good enough or what they would like to see done better. Like when you've got mm. when you've got two billion users, like some of Google's products do, then it's a little more difficult to have an individual conversation with each one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would I would dive into um, into that one a bit later because there is a difference if you you know if, if you have a if if you have already a service running, that's kind of a different story, I believe. Then I'm currently working on a brand new service where I basically cannot really check if uh if my customers is, are happy because they cannot they cannot use the service yet um yeah so let's let's dive into that uh, later um there i i have another question when it comes to terminology mm-hmm. um so we 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 talked about uh service level objectives we talked about service level indicators there is another term uh error budget so what is an error budget and how does it relate to my SLOs? So if you define your service in level indicators as the ratio of good events to all events, like I was suggesting just now, your service level objective is going to be a static threshold that's just, just short of one. As we've talked about three nines, two and a half nines. Three nines is where 99.9% of your events are good and four nines is where 99.99% of your events are good. And the, like the converse of that is that one in a thousand events are allowed to fail. But um, th- if you think about this, you're measuring this over time. Usually, uh, a, a window you measure your how whether you're meeting your service level objectives is like 28 days or an hour. Uh, so, if you're serving thousands of requests per second, then what if you've served a thousand requests successfully? That one failure is in the bank, as it were, from the perspective of your service level objective, because you're measuring over the period of like an entire hour or an entire like 28 days. So until all of these successful requests move out of that that window of measurement, you can serve two bad responses in the next 1,000 requests, and you're still okay overall. And that failure being in the bank is like, that's where the error budget comes from, error budget concept comes from. It's the idea that once you have a target that says, some level of service is good enough. It gives you a budget of allowable errors that you can serve during any particular measurement window while still maintaining good overall service. And if you haven't served all the errors in that budget, you've banked the remainder and you can spend them on risky activities that may allow you to serve more errors than usual. Like the, the canonical one here is pushing a new release. Like um, we've got good data in Google that shows that 70% or so of the outages that we have are related to change in our systems in one way or another, like pushing a new release, pushing a new configuration. Um, that, that, kind of th- that kind of risk is a major one. And so we treat software releases as a risky business and we make sure that we have error budget, say, spare error budget that we could burn if the release goes wrong before we push any releases. Hmm. Yeah, I I think the uh, yeah the the idea of an error budget is absolutely uh, fantastic. So um, it makes so much sense <laughs> to have something like that. And uh, yeah, if you measure it and you see, I, I mean, I, I guess for most of the companies that's true. Uh, change usually leads to outages. I yeah, I'm the thing is we in our projects we don't perfectly measure that i i would um 
but I would just, you know, ha have an educated, it's not even an educated guess, but uh, my guess would also be having, um, having most of the, uh, the, the problems after a release. And yeah, if, if, if you just consumed most of your error budget, then uh, slow a little bit down on uh, new features and focus on, on reliability work. Absolutely. Um, we were talking about trade-offs before you press the record button, and this is another um, one of the core trade-offs in software engineering is like when when do you build more features and when do you engineer more reliability into your service? Like because you can't do both, or you you can't do a hundred percent of both. Like you have to find a nice balance between the two. Um. Yeah. If this kind so of, so that yeah. Um. I just realized like I hadn't pasted one area of thing and it, but this kind of leads nicely into it. So um the that trade-off and finding the right point in that um that kind of configuration space of engineering for reliability versus engineering for um features is one of the things you can do with an error budget. The you um you can build like a feedback loop to regulate the pace of change in your production environment. If you have plenty of error budget remaining, then you've got the green light to take more risks. And if there's very little remaining, it's a signal that you want to, you need to act more conservatively, perhaps by postponing the release of potentially buggy new features, like I was saying, or by turning off experiments. Like one of the, another good thing to use um, spare error budget on is have running A-B tests. So you, you have, uh, you want to, say you want to gather data on whether a new feature is going to go down well with users, but it's still potentially buggy. You, you release it to like half a percent or 1% of your user base. You can burn some error budget if it does go wrong, but you're not going to burn all of it. Yeah, so A-B testing is a nice way of using some of your error budget. Um, with um, If you have an error budget policy that's agreed upon between all parties, like development, SRE, uh, product management, and hopefully sponsored by an executive, that can make sure you've got the correct incentives in place and a feedback loop built upon an error budget with an error budget policy guiding um, the balance between reliability and feature work, um, this kind of feedback loop can be pretty much self-driven by the development team. Yeah, I would, I think the error budget policy is quite, um, also quite interesting, but I, I would postpone that discussion uh, to, to, uh, to a later point. Um, first, I, I just, you know, it was more clarification of uh, the terms, mm -hmm. and uh, now I want to dive a little bit deeper into the in, into the topic. Um, SLOs. I mean, we briefly touched on uh, how to get the right SLOs, but now, yeah, let's have a a, a, a bit deeper discussion on it. Um, yeah, as I already said, I cannot go to a technical product sponsor and say. Uh, how much availability do you want? Because um, usually he or she would say, I want a 100% or, you know, I want a very fast system. Um, we, we really cannot work with that. So both statements are really not good. And um, maybe could you explain why that is not the, the right approach uh, to, to define SLOs? Sure, totally. I mean, uh, we all want these things, don't we? All want these things. Um, I also want a pony, if that's possible. Can I have a pony, please? No, uh, no. Oh, snap. Oh, but um, you're right. They're, they are both problematic statements 
but and they're problematic in different ways. The the second is easier to pick apart. Like I want a very fast system. It's it's just not specific enough. You can't measure very fast with a monitoring system because you need a like computers don't understand very fast. They need a specific response time threshold that you can describe to them, like five hundred milliseconds. And if you can't measure it, you can't tell whether you're very fast enough. So like the statement isn't helpful. Um, for the first statement, you might have noticed when I was talking about SLOs before that I suggested targets just short of 100%, like three nines. Ben Trainer, the vice president of, of 24-7 at Google, has a quote, and we've used it in the S3 books and other training materials like the Art of SLOs. It says, it says 100% is the wrong target for almost everything. I know like this sounds like an appeal to authority kind of argument. Oh, Ben Trainer says so, it must be true. But that's that's not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Um, it's really it's an acknowledgement that um, some level of failure is simply inevitable. Like whatever you want, everyone tries to strives for one hundred percent as much as possible, but like reality gets in the way sometimes. And this is true even of things that we consider for uh, words. This is true even of things that we consider reliability to be essential for, like like pacemakers. And I, I went through digging through the medical literature to prove this point when I was writing the art of SLOs because you know otherwise someone was going to say hey, citation needed. As in from the audience, I uh, I found a paper from 2005, and I, this sounds like I did a bunch of research, but I literally just went to Wikipedia. But um, it had data showing that the post-installation reliability of pacemakers fitted between 1990 and 2002 was around 99.6%, like two and a half nines. So around 0.4% of pacemakers inside a person keeping them alive failed at some point. And get this. the the really th thing I really really like about this is the the title of this paper is pacemakers malfunction less often than defibrillators. They're not even hitting three nines, and this is a success story in medicine where they're <laughs> alive. So the point I'm trying to make here is that 100 percent yeah. is just not a realistic reliability target over anything but the shortest time windows. What's more, like making a service more reliable requires increasing commitments of both engineering time and operational support for ever-decreasing improvements to your overall liability. Uh, we have a rough rule of thumb in, inside Google where each extra nine costs 10 times more than the last one. And at some point before you reach 100% reliability, the trade-off is just no longer worth making because the costs outweigh the benefits. And you were kind of asking before about, like, what, where do we put the target? Well, like, wh how, when the user's happy enough? And how do we figure out where that target should be? And in Google's case, when talking about web search specifically, we came to the conclusion that if we aim to be slightly more reliable than top consumer ISPs, the users would be substantially more likely to attribute random errors to failures at their ISP rather than failures within Google. And um, Google doesn't target 100% reliability, but how do you normally check whether your internet connection is working? I mean, for most people, they'll be like, well, I, I know Google.com. If it's working, then my internet connection is working. And that that just shows you, like, we're not 100% reliable. I've I can I've seen the graphs. I I know that's true, but people consider us to be reliable because we are more reliable than other steps in the path for them getting their search results. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's uh, that's always also uh, thanks to to actually uh, the Google Book. Um, I always use that. Uh, that analogy or not it's not an analogy but when i say you know 100 percent uh what happens if if your internet connection just doesn't work i mean or you're on your mobile phone and you drive through a tunnel or something like that so yeah 100 percent you no one expects a 100 percent yeah um and people are willing if it's 
just random failure, people are willing to just hit F5 and retry. And if that if it works that time, then they don't think about it anymore. It's sustained failure that starts to cause people's expectations to really drop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it just happens, the question is, uh, things happen too often, uh, failure happens too often, or it's it, it happens too long. So um, I just don't know where, you know, the, the or in other words, um, the Google books say um, the the SLO should be the dividing line between happy and unhappy customers. Mm. Yeah. And uh, okay, when I when I saw that, I, I thought, okay, yeah, let's let's implement it. But it turned out, uh, I mean, no surprise, it turned out to be an incredibly hard question to answer. So okay, 100% is not really necessary. It it just you know as, as we learned. But the other, what is necessary? So um, and we briefly touched on that uh, a couple of minutes ago. But um, yeah, let, let's dive deeper into the topic. So how how do I get the the initial values uh, for um, yeah um, a running system, for example? Uh, this is um, going to be a thing you hear me preaching a lot um, because like it's a very a very core part of the process, in my opinion. Um, like finding something is mostly a case of choosing some initial numbers and then gathering data and iterating like um don't try and make your initial numbers too good don't don't try and don't wait basically don't don't wait to try and make the numbers better and refine them before starting to measure them measure them as soon as possible because the more data you have the better decisions you can make and so the first thing on that note to remember is that uh, your past performance is already an implicit SLO for your users because your users' expectations of your service's reliability are going to be anchored by their past experience of it. If if you have a live system, you can simply start measuring SLIs you think capture your service's reliability and base your initial targets on their performance once you have a few months worth of data. Like you don't even need a goal to start off with. Like just measure an SLI, measure something you think might work as an SLI and see how it performs. Because you'll learn something new about your system. And you might learn that your idea of an SLI was a bad one. <laughs> and so going through the effort of setting a goal for something that turned out to be a bad SLI, like that's, that's wasted effort. The, the more you can do with gathering data before, the better your like initial things will be. So you'll know from your monitoring history that you can meet any goal that you set over a short to medium term. If, if the SLI turns out to perform well, like it turns to be a good turns out to be a good proxy for the experience your users have when using your system, then you know from the monitoring history of that SLI that you can set a target that you can meet over the short term. And if your users are currently happy, then this should keep them happy, broadly speaking. You're not going to regress. You're not going to suddenly start performing less well because now you've set a target that you know you can meet and you're measuring that you're meeting that target. And of course, this only works if your users are actually happy with the current level of service and reliability. If you know that they're not, maybe because they're loudly informing you of that fact via Twitter, then you know that you have to set your future targets higher than what your past performance indicates you can meet. And this also means you've got some engineering work to do to improve the reliability of your systems. If you don't already have a running system, then things get a bit more difficult. You have to make some educated guesses as to what level of unreliability will start negatively impacting your users. Like This is a kind of a thought experiment. You know what? What will one in 100 page on loads be an error? 
be will that be a minor nuisance or a frustrating experience? Will one of the thousand page loads be an error? Be frustrating. Is taking half a second to respond really fast enough for like ninety nine percent of your users? And even though you don't have concrete data to base these decisions on, you're you're not you're not doing this in a vacuum. When you're developing a new product, your initial SLOs should be part of the product definition. So you'll need to involve product folks and user experience designers into these discussions. You can you can look at other companies with similar products and similar market segments, and you can analyze their performance to see what level of service they're providing to their users. And if no one's sure, just as I said before, don't set targets yet if you don't have any users, so they can't be unhappy. You come up with SLIs. <laughs> yeah, so come up with some SLIs and measure them as you start to introduce your traffic into the system, and then you can set initial targets based on this data. The problem with targets based on historical data is that you don't know whether users may be happier or use your system more if it was more reliable. So this, what this means is that you should also try and have some idea of what reliability target the business thinks the service needs to meet as well. This might be to avoid breaching SLAs or contractual agreements with third parties, or because user engagement starts to drop off, or because customers buy less stuff when the targets are missed. And, but if you can hmm. buy the SLO target back to how the company makes money, then you're going to have a much easier time selling it to the rest of the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. If you are able to uh, find that metric, I think that's uh, quite hard. Um, yeah, what, what, one thing you said um, in the beginning, just start as quickly as possible with uh, measuring. Yeah. Um, so let, let's assume we don't have the perfect uh, monitoring system available yet, yeah, because that's another thing, you know, you, you really have to, to build the monitoring around it. And now I could say, yeah, I just wait uh, another two or three months until my monitoring is there. So what, what I did w once propose, and people think that's too, you know, simplistic, is just start with uh, looking at uh, at uh, your incidents, you know, just put it in an um, in an Excel sheet and uh, and just work with that Excel sheet. It's it's totally simplistic, um, but and it, it, it's missing a lot of uh, interesting data. But at least you get started. You know, you have something until you have your monitoring uh, ready for SLOs. So is that something you 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 also think is doable, or is that a bit too simplistically uh, th thought? No, I, I think that's I think that's a great idea. If like if you don't have monitoring then um i think it's most it's important to start gathering any data that you can like if um it's going to take you three months to build uh, a monitoring system to start measuring any of this that's three months you're wasting like that you could be gathering any data at all and even if it's in an excel spreadsheet like um incomplete data um data that only has like a few data points over over the entire three month period is still more data than like your non-existent monitoring system is right so <laughs> yeah, yeah. um i think that's valuable and um, if you're doing it as in um from instance then presumably that's coming as part of your post-mortem process or i hope it's like part of your post-mortem process like your any post-mortem for instance should be able to tell the company the impact on its users like and on its revenue streams right and that the mm. process of gathering that data is something you have to do for the post-mortem anyway if, or in my opinion something you yeah. something you at least ought to be doing like I, I maybe i should be shouldn't be saying you have to do it because uh, 
I don't want to be forcing people into things, but um, it's uh, something I believe you ought to be doing because like, it's valuable to the company to understand the cost of that outage. But yeah. Yeah. All your, and then all your Excel spreadsheet is doing is like, okay, I have X, Y, Z postmortems. This is the impact to the users. This is the cost to the company. And like, you want, maybe want to have some other tagging things like which, like which region you were serving from at the time or where the, where the, which countries the users were most impacted in or th something like that. Just so, because like you're spotting patterns at this point and it's still valuable to do that. And you can still use even the most incomplete of data to guide some engineering decisions in the absence of a monitoring system that can tell you more. Yeah, yeah, it's, it sounds like incremental uh, software development. Uh, start with something small and then um, grow it and don't wait until you have something perfect in place. Yeah, you're, you're gonna raise some eyebrows when you say, okay, this, this sprint, we're having an outage because I need to gather some data. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, so now um, I, I collect those data, uh, maybe with my perfect uh, monitoring or just with my uh, Excel spreadsheet. And um, now I, no one is com complaining about Twitter, let's say heavily, but I still, you know, I'm, I'm still not perfect. I, I do not perfectly know what is, what makes my customers happy or not. And now I, I, I want to establish feedback loops, um, to get better insight into what my customers really need. So what, what, what would be, or what are ideas, um, to, to, for, for those feedback loops to, to get uh, better customer insight? So I think the feedback loop is, it's really two things. There's, well, there's two halves to it, really. There's, you've got to understand the customer experience of your service's reliability. So you're, you're measuring your service from the perspective of your users and how they're, how they're receiving the service. And then you need to use that understanding to tune your SLO targets. And one reasonable path towards the first half of this, towards understanding the customer experience, is simply to ask them. Like, you need to find things that you can correlate with your monitoring signals. Um, I mentioned customer satisfaction surveys before. They, these are nice. They're, they, um, they're good at small scales. They don't scale up to like billions of customers. And one of the other problems with them is that they can be biased because the people often simply ignore these surveys unless they're dissatisfied and they want to complain. But since you're mostly looking for evidence of unhappy customers, that's not a huge problem anyway. Like it, it, if people are willing to tell you that you suck, then that's valuable data, even if it can. <laughs> um, and if you have customer support forums or a ticket system or things like that, it can provide a similar signal. And the same goes for social media like Twitter or Facebook, although you need to take those with a slightly bigger pinch of salt because it's very easy to be angry on Twitter. Mm. Other things you can consider, other things that can be very helpful here are product metrics like engagement, session length, etc. Your product folks will should have some idea of what they want to track to understand how your users are interacting with the services you provide. Like each of their launches, if they, they're going to be able to want to say, prove to the business that the launch was a success, they're going to have a metric that tells them that the launch was a success by in their terms. Those metrics, you should not just measure them for the launch, you should measure them continuously over time. Because if they dip again, then the launch has suddenly become less successful, even if it's like two years down the line. And you want to know why. And if that, 
dip in a metric that told you the launch was successful correlates to an outage that you had, then that metric of um, customer engagement that the product folks like is also a metric that is useful to tell you that your customers are less happy with your services in like just in general. Mm. And they're, they're often very different. They're often like engagement metrics, but they can tell you how much the like being able to tie a, like an increase in 500 serve to users to a drop in user engagement is valuable because it tells you these 500s had this impact on the trust our users put in our services. Because as you, you said before, like if um, like I have, there's an outage, I, d I, I don't come back to the service often. Like I, if they, if they burn enough of my trust, I'm just not going to come back. And like that drop in engagement is users not coming back. The, the last thing to factor in here are the business metrics like revenue, although in larger companies, these can be increasingly difficult to get hold of because the, there's a lot of regulation reporting requirements that mean that they have to be kept secret, like in, in, mm. insider trading things and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a finance guy, but like I, I've seen these things happen before. And they're also a lot harder to tie back to concrete service metrics, like because they're often very much lagging indicators. Like you don't have a real, I mean, actually, these days, some companies do. I don't know if you've seen Shopify's um, real-time Black Friday, Cyber Monday monitoring. It's fantastic. Like, no, every, no, I haven't seen it. Uh, every minute, they update um, a web page showing like how many, how much the dollar value of the sales they've made in that minute, how many sales there were, and they have a real-time JavaScript map of the world spinning around this beautiful globe, and it has points dan dancing from the point of the customer to the point of the per the person doing the selling. And there's just these thousands of dots flying around the globe as, as they sell thousands and thousands of products every minute. And they, they have a real-time signal of how much money they're making. And if they have an outage, they can see that drop down. And that's really... Oh, okay, okay. It, it's amazing. But I, most companies, they'll, they'll have this, maybe like there'll be an accounting job that runs at the end of the day, or maybe they only figure it out once per quarter. How much money did we make? But if you can get a real-time signal of that and you can tie that back to your 500s, then you can tell... You can gauge the revenue impact of any unreliability because these errors are potential lost sales. And like, if you make your money via adverts rather than um, like actually selling things to people, then each page view has an associated revenue, and each error is money down the drain. And so you can tie the five hundred you served to a lost ad revenue, and then like when it comes to writing the post mortem, you can hopefully just write a script that says, okay, so um, what's the average revenue per ad that we serve on this property? And how many pages did we not serve? Therefore, like this is much how much cash we lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I know the the uh, how, how much cash we lost. I think that that's and uh, we we need to dive a, a bit deeper. I mean, not here in the podcast, but in uh, you know in, in in our projects because what what you it's not that you can say. Um, I had a 10 minute outage and I lost 10 minutes uh, of potential revenue because customers may come back. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, but still it's, it's interesting to see if you had an outage, you know, what, how much revenue did you lose compared to the, to the last months, for example. So and, um, I yeah. have a, a nice story on that. Um, um, this isn't like an improved one. So this might cause me to have to go back to the press folks, but, uh, <laughs> um, so in play, we, uh, 
and in fact, in a lot of the, the Google services that deal with money, they, we do have the, the real-time graph of like at least not of dollar value, but of order numbers. So um, on the Play Store, you'd have uh, the orders per second kind of ticking across as one of the metrics we kept track of. And you could see outages and you did see like the crater from the outage and you did see the spike afterwards as people came back and then started buying whatever they're buying on the Play Store again. And like someone with a much better grasp of t- grasp of statistics than I did wrote some a script in R that would take like two hours of monitoring data with a crater in it, and it would plot what it thought the the trend line would have been through that dip and subsequent spike, and calculate the net loss of orders, which was really great. Like it it made writing the post and postmortems a lot easier because you just like point the script at your monitoring data <laughs> and it would tell you how much money you'd lost. All you had to give it was like the average order value per day, which is like mon- that was a thing that like I managed to get access to as like being one of the people on the Play Store uh, SRE team, specifically for the purpose of writing the postmortems. So you just run the script and it'd be like, oh, ouch, that was expensive today. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's basically perfect to, um, yeah, to discuss with uh, product people, right? You, you really, you, you can say it, it costs us X amount of money to make things more reliable. And um, if you look at our numbers, our unreliability cost uh, Y euros over the last uh, month or year. Mm-hmm. And then you, you you really have nice numbers to to see how far do we want to get. Yeah. Uh, so because of course reliability, as you said, each nine costs you a factor of ten. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a simpler way. Uh, what, what you said uh, with um, yeah, I think net promoter score, or you just you know you just you just ask customers if they're happy. I also I in in the beginning I thought uh, this doesn't work, uh, but I have to admit that my experience with that is actually um, a good indication, yeah. Um, because I, I reached out to uh, the uh, to the customer happiness uh, team, and they they said, yeah, we you know we we ask our customers on a regular basis, and usually they complain that uh, yeah we need more features, for example. And there was a time they complained about uh, performance, but that's now fixed. So nobody complains about performance anymore. So it seems that uh, we are quite good at uh, performance and nobody complains about availability except in, you know, this and that region. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was quite surprised that you get a very simple answer and yeah, you can work with that answer. So, um, you're, you're looking for broad brushstrokes anyway, right? You don't, you don't need really, really fine grained data because it tends to be too much. Like, uh, just as you said, just the signal of like in this region, customers are complaining about reliability more than the customers in other regions. That's enough of a signal for you to go to a software engineer, right? Your job for this sprint is to figure out why. Mm, exactly, exactly. And you, and the thing is, no one is asking, um, is that really necessary? Because uh, everyone knows, yeah, the, uh, we we need to put engineering effort into that piece uh, because custom. We know that customers are uh, complaining about it. So it's uh, it's it's not so hard to to get those uh, to get this work uh, into a sprint. 
okay, I, I um, mentioned um, performance or latency that, you know, in this one specific case, uh, customers com uh, complain about latency. Hmm. Um, if you work with customers internally at Google or outside uh, um, with uh, customer reliability engineering, what, what, what is your approach to define latency SLOs? So with, with, with what numbers should I start? Uh, for example, uh, in my opinion, a search or product detail page must be really fast because I do that quite often. And um, I want, I, I expect that to have, uh, you know, very low latency. And if I then come to the checkout and payment, mm. you know, I'm, I'm actually happy if it's, if it's a bit slower because I do that. I, I search and look at products quite often and checkout and payment happens only once. So I, I'm happy if it's, uh, you know, I'm okay with it if it's slower. Um, but I, I still, I, what are good reference points to get started with to understand uh, good latency requirements? I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to preach the same as I've always preached. Like you measure what you can do and start from there. You know, it's uh, that's the easiest thing to get started with. Is um, you're you're not working in a vacuum. You have data on how fast you are already. Let's just start with that. Don't you? <clears throat> what you don't want to do is get worse. I think payments are an interesting example because like we're talking about anchored expectations here, like people already using your service, they know how fast it usually is in their experience. If you get worse than that, they will start getting less happy. And payments are a great example of anchored expectations because everyone knows that it takes a few seconds for the transaction to complete when you're buying something on the internet. So you don't expect it to be instant. And this is mostly fine because the transaction is usually the culmination of a whole session of searching and browsing and comparing. Like you were saying, the search on product detail pages, they need to be fast because you've got to bang through 50 of them to find that nice Christmas present for your mum or whatever. But you'd be pretty annoyed if every click of those three or four seconds took uh, every click of those 50 or so clicks to find the right present took three or four seconds to return a response. <laughs> you'd have spent like, instead of five minutes poking through Amazon, you'd spend 20 minutes poking through Amazon. And by that time, you'd be like, God, what isn't this experience over already? So <laughs> you're right that most pages need to load con like considerably faster. But <clears throat> the other thing to consider here is whether, where you're measuring the latency. Are you measuring from the client, including the round trip time from your, your users to your servers? Like this is the most accurate way to assess what your users are experiencing because they're, they're there on the other end of that maybe long piece of string going, load, load, please now. There's a lot of variability inherent in that measure, and there's, you don't have a huge amount of control over a lot of that variability either. Mm. Yeah, that is that's uh, a question I'm asking myself uh, uh, for a longer time. So, I, what is the best place um, to measure if a best place uh, exists? For example, yeah, as you said, I. The, the most realistic part is to measure directly at the end user. Um, for example, uh, I put that in the show notes. There is something, I believe, from Google, uh, the largest contentful paint. Um, you know, the, the, what it's it's the part of the on, on the web, web browser, for example, where the user can see m the most important stuff. Yeah, and uh, that is a really good indication what the user really sees and needs in the web browser. Yeah, if it's a web mm -hmm. app, of course. And I think that's really great, but it's um, yeah, it's a bit harder to measure uh, compared to I, I measure at the load balancer. You know, that's really easy. 
Yeah. Um, but if I do that, I don't get uh, any information about uh, latency problems caused by JavaScript libraries, for example. So, uh, yeah, maybe the, the, the better question is, uh, so the best place is not a good question, but the better question is here probably, um, what, what should I ask myself before selecting a latency SLI? Yeah, I, I agree that the best place is not really where you want to be because there's usually not one best place. And it, it's kind of an engineering decision you need to make given the system that you're measuring and the expectations and behavior of your users as to where you measure your latency. I, I, I can suggest some rules of thumb, I think, that can help with making those decisions, though. And the first one is to try and minimize the, the variability that I mentioned just now. Like, if you can't control it and it's like it can go from 100 to 1,000 milliseconds without you changing anything in your system, then it's very, very hard to make an SLI that measures that and gives you a useful signal. And it's much more of a concern for things like latency because you know an HTTP 500 is the same no matter where it's measured. Like it's not you're not going to have a 200 served leaving your load balancer that suddenly turns into a 500 by the time it reaches the user unless someone's playing uh, terrible games on the the return path for serving and like they may be in the in the like the canonical example of something like this happening is like a. Um, a company proxies all of its web the, the web browsing its employees through proxies for you know monitoring reasons and various other things and they're legally allowed to do this kind of stuff um but if that proxy is malfunctioning like you get the request you send it back and then the proxy serves a 500 to your user you have no control over that mm. but um in general hp 500 is the same no matter where it's measured but a 200 millisecond response time measured at the, your load balances, it could translate into several seconds if you're measuring it at the wrong end of a poor mobile connection. And as I said, the, the, this variability reduces the signal-to-noise ratio of your SLI because you can't tell whether the deterioration in performance is natural variation because you know someone's walking around in a spotty mobile signal area or because your service is running slowly. Another thing to ask yourself is uh, what proportion of this thing that I'm measuring is down to the factors beyond my control? Like, if the services are in Western Europe, if you're serving from Western Europe, but you have users accessing these services in South Africa, those users are going to have a completely different experience and probably completely different expectations from your your European users. The, the distance between the two places is going to incur a couple of hundred milliseconds of latency alone, and that's before you factor in the differences in capacity and connectivity of the local internet infrastructure. The only way you can materially change the, the experience of these folks in South Africa is to serve them locally. And this may not be possible for any number of reasons, like, you know, regulation or um, like the, just the sheer cost of setting up another data center significantly further away from where your business is. Um, excluding this round trip time from your SLIs and only measuring latency incurred thanks to the infrastructure you're, that you control directly is a reasonable choice to make here. And this brings me on to like the, the last point I want to make here is that um, it's useful to think about the mechanics of measurement. Your request latency forms a distribution of values, which is normally tracked as a metric uh, by quantizing these individual latency measurements into buckets. Like each number, each bucket counts the number of requests within a slice of the latency distribution, like say 50 to 100 milliseconds. To measure a latency SLO with 100% accuracy with a metric like this, you have to ensure that the threshold for too slow falls exactly on a bucket boundary. Because if you don't, you're at the mercy of whatever intra-bucket interpolation method, usually it's like just linear. Uh, whatever is used to calculate the number of events that were above that threshold. For 
large bucket sizes and low event rates, which can happen pretty regularly when you're measuring long tail latency, this can result in really significant loss of your measurement accuracy. So like you don't really know whether you're meeting your SLO because like you're at the mercy of where in that linear interpolation between the two bucket boundaries, your 99th percentile happens to fall, for example. Hmm. Now, um, yeah, talking about uh, percentile um, or yeah, percentile buckets, um, do you have an opinion which percentile to choose? Um, so for, for our listeners, um, what is a percentile actually? The percentile defines how many requests I look at from a sample. For example, if I have 100 requests, yeah, then the 99th percentile looks at the, the 99 fastest requests and ignores the slowest. And the, 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 the 75th percentile looks at the 75 fastest requests and ignores the 25 uh, slowest uh, requests. So, yeah, one, one question I'm, I'm always true. Uh, I mean, it, it, for, it, it got a bit better. Yeah. But it, it's, uh, it's not a super easy question to choose the right, uh, percentile. So what, what, what is your, uh, recommendation on, um, choosing percentiles? So if you're defining your latency SLIs in the way that the art of SLO suggests, where you, you separate your requests into good and like bad buckets, uh, instead of choosing a static percentile and measuring the lower bound of latency for that percentile of requests, like you say, I, I want to find a 99th percentile uh, latency, you, you, you look at every 100 requests and like the 99th request, that's the latency you choose when you've ordered them. Um, this means that the, the latency you're measuring like it fluctuate it fluctuates around um in, instead of choosing a static percentile and measuring this fluctuating percentile latency you you set a static latency threshold like 500 milliseconds like then that that divides your distribution into good versus bad the requests that are faster than this 500 millisecond threshold are good and those that aren't are bad and this is easy to turn into an sli because you can just measure the fraction of requests that are good mm, mm, mm. When you set an SLO goal, you're choosing what percent of requests need to meet your latency threshold for the service to be reliable enough. And so um, instead of saying, I want my 99th percentile latency to be 500 milliseconds, you're saying, I want 99% of my requests to be faster than 500 milliseconds. Which is, it's, it's a very slight difference, but in terms of measurement, it makes the problem a lot more tractable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah, I can, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the, the problem is if I only look at percentiles and, uh, I have this very bad moment, uh, in a certain month where I don't meet my percentile, I just, you know, I have this binary decision. I didn't make my uh, percentile or I, I left my percentile, but if I just measure good and bad events, um, okay, it's just a bad event, for example. Well, um, so yeah, I guess it depends because um, when you start talking about fraction fraction of requests rather than percentile latency, um, you can end up with a like a very very long tail skewing the percentile latency. But if like still ninety nine point nine five percent of your requests were 
because uh, and that's because of the interpolation I was talking about before, right? Um, but if you're still 99.95% of your requests were faster than the 500 millisecond threshold, then everyone's still broadly speaking happy. Um, so yeah, I, I think it can be it can be more helpful to measure things when you've got the static threshold. And I think also that making the latency constant means that the SLO is it's easier to reason about for the reasons we just discussed, but it's also help. It helps when discussing with other parts of the business. Your product folks are—they're almost certainly going to have a specific goal in mind when it comes to the tail latency. When the, this is the small fraction of responses that are significantly slower than the rest, whether it be for like garbage collection or other whatever other reasons. Um, tracking and minimizing this latency is an important part of optimizing the user experience for the product folks. When when your users are interacting with the service regularly, even if only one in a hundred requests is really slow, when they've got uh, an average browsing session for a user making a hundred requests, then that means they're almost guaranteed to have one slow response every time they use your service. And having to noticeably wait for that response will stick in their mind. Like you know, you're say you're we go back to the example of browsing uh, like an Amazon or whatever shopping site for Christmas presents. Like that one time where the page didn't load didn't load quickly, that's going to be the time that you remember every other page just being product, product, product. It's not going to stick in your mind. But when you're sitting there, and you, it's always the one you really wanted to look at as well, isn't it? Like it's always like the one product you think, ah, this is the one, this is the one. And then it takes three seconds to load rather than being there for <laughs> seconds. And you're sitting there going, why? <sighs> so. Like other SLOs, what you're trying to do with the latency SLO is you're you're modeling the relationship between the user happiness and the response latency. And like we would, the 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 example I was giving there is a nice nice illustration of that. Like, but to get technical for a second, this this relationship between user happiness and response latency, it, it kind of follows an inverse inverse sigmoidal curve. And like I can't in words describe what this looks like. So please image search for this term because it will save me like, this is one of those examples where um, a picture really does uh, give you a thousand words. So it, it follows this inverse sigmoidal curve with increasing latency on the x-axis and percentage of users that are happy on the y-axis. So um, when you set a latency threshold and associated SLO target, you're approximating this curve with a step function. like. Uh, instead of it being a nice slow drop in happiness as latency increases, you've got this. Uh, you're approximating with this thing where users are 100% happy until they hit this this threshold of 500 milliseconds, and then they're 100% unhappy. This is this is obviously a pretty crude approximation. Like uh, <laughs> your users are not going to go from 100% happy at 498 milliseconds and 100% unhappy <laughs> at 502 milliseconds. That is just not how people work. Uh, so when you only set one target, <laughs> you're forced to aim for this long tail because that's the top priority. So you're normally talking about, like, say, 99% of your responses being faster than 500 milliseconds. And the problem with this is that you could have 98% of your responses being served in exactly 488 milliseconds and still be with an SLO. And because, like, of what we we're talking about just now, you know that you you know that you've ensured your long tail is not too long, but at what cost? Because your users probably still aren't that happy about the situation. If every page load takes 498 milliseconds, you're with an SLO, mm -hmm. but your users are probably still grumbling quite a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so depending on the shape of your particular curve, like depending on how quick the how quickly happiness drops off as latency increases, you can get a better approximation of the curve by creating two latency SLIs instead of one. 
you might say that 75% of your requests should complete in 200 milliseconds and 99% of them should complete in 500 milliseconds, for example. Hmm. This extra SLI ensures that you know only a quarter of your requests can cause your users to grumble a bit before you start doing something about it. Yeah. And yeah, that's so. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's okay. I I, I thought um just thought about something with the the previous thing you were talking about with um the example where you've got JavaScript latency as well. Um, what you can do there is have two latency SLOs, one just measuring the render time and one measuring the time taken to get the JavaScript out of your um your load balancers. So again, you've got two latency things there, but this time you're splitting it because you're only measuring the bits that you control. Mm. I can't remember if I said that later on in the thing. Yeah. Or not. Sorry. Uh, no, no, no problem. Uh, uh, I just had my, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say my little epiphany, but um, I think mo the, the problem is that, uh, I mean, what you're saying is uh, perfectly right, but Still, you know, most of the the tooling you can you can buy is looking at percentiles, and it's actually you know that that's like a, a, a little bit of the of the problem. I, I'm I'm so deep into percentiles, and um, you know, approaching it that way requires uh, some um, yeah rethinking of the yeah actually of tooling and uh, thinking about performance. Yes, I I agree. Um. But the the trick here, I think, is to remember that underlying any percentile is a distribution measurement. And as I said before, as long as one of your bucket boundaries is where your SLO threshold for latency is, then you can measure it accurately with from just from the distribution. Because you sum you sum all of the buckets that are below the boundary, and that's your good. And then you take the whole distribution sum as your your valid requests. And so if your percentiles are being measured by an underlying distribution, you should be okay without having to change things too much. Like you just have to change how you aggregate data from, like, because a percentile is just a statistical function, right? So instead of applying the percentile statistical function to your distribution, you sum the buckets that are below a threshold and you sum all of the buckets and then that gives you your good and your valid. Thank you for listening to this first episode. Please also consider listening to the second episode where we will cover availability SLOs and availability requirements, dependency graphs and service availability calculus, how to deal with unknown availability SLOs, communicating availability SLOs, the SLI menu, where should we measure what, which measurement has which pros and cons, when and how to combine those measurements, and finally, reporting windows. Mm -hmm.